Well, welcome again here to City Life Suffolk. Some of y'all were getting a little excited about that Oreos game. I believe for our ice cream Sundays we have Oreos back there. So if y'all want to challenge each other to a duel, start with that on your forehead and just get it all the way down to your mouth. So we can do that. We can do that along with Nate's root beer roulette with the shaking up two liters. We can do all that. We can have some fun. But I also want to shout out the youth that are back. Manny's here right here. And I want to say, aren't Hannah and Katie, they're serving again. Last weekend, we were going to pray for them and sending them out, and they were serving in the nursery. They faithfully served. So, it, I mean, we thank the tech team, but uh, while we're doing that, let's thank those people that serve our kids and our students every week back there, sewing into them, so then they can go off and do that and get poured into. So, they're awesome. But I know uh, a lot of youth, when I was a youth pastor, would come back from camp, and they'd want to get baptized. And that's one of the reasons that all three campuses um, in August, we're going to be doing baptisms. So a very practical way. If you know maybe one of your sons or daughters might want to get baptized, you know that God's been moving in your life and you want to make that public declaration of faith. You can simply text baptism to that number right there and we'll get all your info through that. Very simple, plain technology. I love the 21st century. But uh, So I'm going to leave that up there if that's you because I know you need to put down that number. But uh, speaking of baptisms, Jesus spoke of different baptisms in the Bible and and uh, I was baptized into the world of, of coffee a few years ago. How many of you guys are coffee drinkers in here? How many of you guys don't drink coffee? Like, it's not your thing. Don't really like the taste. That was me up until maybe three or four years ago. See, when I was Manny's age, for instance, my dad drank coffee. He would brew it. I would say, that smells delicious. Let me get a sip. But he drank it black. So I'd take that sip and be like, That's, that tastes like something out of a gorilla's armpit. I don't know. Like, it just tastes terrible, like randomly terrible. And I've worked my way to black coffee now as a grown man. Maybe it's just, maybe it just takes a while. But uh, I spend a lot of time in Starbucks now, meeting with some of you guys. I met with some of your faces this week in Starbucks, preparing sermons. Because now that I'm in the world of coffee and I'm also in the world of Suffolk, can I get an amen? And then my office is in Newport News. When I'm studying and I want to do it down here, I'll usually hit up Starbucks, get myself a coffee, use their Wi-Fi, and get to work. Um, but how many of you guys have been to Starbucks and you log into the Wi-Fi? Has anybody here ever read the terms and conditions, by the way? Anybody in your life ever read the terms and conditions? Yeah, see, I don't even know why they have that. Everybody just checks the box, hits accept, and then there's the poll of the day. Maybe you're familiar where there's just a poll of the day. Usually it's just minimal, mindless stuff like boxers or briefs or you like coffee cake or birthday cake, yellow cake or chocolate cake. Like, what do you prefer? So, for instance, yesterday it was my neighbors, and you could check either are my best friends or who are these people, right? So hopefully as a welcoming church that we know we're sent out to, the world, hopefully we're getting a little closer to are my best friends. Maybe you're just working towards liking them. But uh, that was yesterday's. But earlier this week, there was one where it said, when I'm at the beach, and one option was I'm working on my tan, and the other option was I'm splashing around. So how many of y'all are working on your tan when you go to the beach? How many of you guys are usually splashing around? How many of you guys say that's a dumb question? I do both. Right? When I go to the beach with my nephews, I'm splashing around until after about three hours when I can't breathe and I'm sore and I just lay down on the towel and I'm working on my tan whether I like to or not because I'm passed out. But I, I looked at that question. I'm like, that's, that's a dumb dichotomy. Why can't I do both? Why would I have to decide between those? And it, it reminded me of, the, obviously, the series we're in. We've been in this series all summer where it's called Big Enough for Both, where we're talking about how we're not supposed to take God's complementary truths and make them contradictory. Where, where God's already put an and, we can't slide in an or. 
You know, there's the tyranny of or where we make these false decisions between one thing or the other when God's already shown he's big enough for both. What am I talking about? Sometimes it's two good things. We open this series talking about grace and truth. In a culture like the one we live in that needs God's truth, do we dispense grace or do we champion truth? And the answer, of course, is both, right? And sometimes it's between a, a good thing and a seemingly restricting or bad thing. Like on, on July 2nd weekend, we looked at does religion, does faith in Christ free me or restrict me? We realized both. Some of God's, uh, well, most of his, all of his boundaries, all of his boundaries, they're freeing. But some of our free acts can restrict us. So it's a little bit of both. God's big enough for both. But then sometimes as we walk through life, we realize a tension and a doubt that arises due to a legitimately bad experience or suffering. And when we suffer, sometimes we, we struggle with this idea between a good God and the presence of suffering. How can those two coexist? Because on surface level, it seems that it can't be both. A good God, all-powerful, that coexists with a suffering world. I've had multiple conversations, and, and maybe you've had a conversation with somebody who's struggling with this, and maybe it plays out like this. The fact that there's terrible suffering in the world. So either God is all-powerful and not good enough to change it, or he's all-good and not powerful enough to change it. And the idea that this all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible, he can't coexist in light of all the suffering in the world. Maybe you've had a conversation like that. I know after the tsunami in, in 2004 that killed a quarter of a million people around the Indian Ocean, after that terrible occurrence, that tragedy, a, a reporter wrote, if God is God, then he's not good. And if God is good, then he's not God. You know, wrapping our head around suffering can be hard, especially when you're doing it in light of a good God. It can seem impossible. It can be downright discouraging. But it's not a new question. It's not a new problem. Suffering has been present ever since the Garden of Eden. And if we look in our gospel, tonight I want to turn to Luke 13. Luke chapter 13. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. There's Bibles under the pews. Or if you've got version, I'll just trust that you're not playing Pokemon. You're actually swiping your way to Luke 13. But Luke 13, we're going to read verses 1 through verse 5. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. I'll put some of it up on the screen. It says, about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? No, not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. You know, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he's addressing, no doubt, this question in their mind, which was, why? Why do these things happen? Who sinned to cause this? Because they can't be good people, right? I mean, what did they do wrong to deserve this? Because bad things don't happen to good people, right? And an all-powerful God, if he loved them, he would have prevented that, right? You know, just the other day, I was working out with Nate and his neighbor. 
And his neighbor's phone just got that notification. I don't know what day it was where that, that guy in Japan went into the care facility in Japan with a knife and killed 19 people. It's in those moments where I realize how numbed I've become to just the pain and suffering in the world. We hear about it every day to the point where I should be mourning. I should be outraged. I should be on my knees before God. But you just hear about it again and again and again. And we made some comment about how crazy the world is, how much it needs Jesus, and then we got right back to working out. And you realize in those moments just how numbed you are to the suffering in the world until it, until it comes to you. Whether it's a firestorm of, of pain and suffering in your own body or it's a, a cloud of grief from somebody you know that's suffering or losing somebody you love, we all deal with suffering. We all do. And the question that arises is, is why? Doubt follows suffering like a reflex. Suffering causes so many to question, how could a good, all-powerful God allow it? How could he really exist? C.S. Lewis himself admitted that, that he originally rejected God because of the seeming cruelty in the world. But then he realized that this cry for justice, this cry for over good and evil, that it actually supported a view of God more than it detracted from it because that universal good and evil, that universal morality and justice, it must come from a transcendent, extra-natural, supernatural source. But even if God is just, how does a good, all-powerful God allow so much injustice? Why do bad things happen to good people? Is it because he lacks love or is it because it's power he lacks? And, you know, just as the youth are coming back from camp, we used to always tell them, Jesus is always the answer. And uh, just tonight, even looking at this, even looking at the problem of suffering, we're going to look at Jesus because we see so much in him. You know, you might ask, why doesn't God stop suffering? You know, the incarnation of Jesus, God taking on flesh, shows us it's not because he doesn't love us. In the incarnation, God stepped down, gave himself in sacrifice for us, the very essence of love. Unlike other world religions, God became uniquely human to the point where he can relate to despair. He can relate to rejection. He can relate to torture. He can relate to suffering. Anything we walk through, he can empathize with. And if we want to know God's view on suffering, we simply have to look at Jesus. Because over the course of his ministry, suffering shakes Jesus to the core. In Mark chapter 14, verses 33 through 36, it says this. It says, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. You know, we realize that Jesus knew the hope of heaven more than any of us. Yet he still struggled with emotion when he was suffering. Because even when we hurt with hope, even when we go through trials with hope, it still hurts. The Bible doesn't tell us to grin and bear it like nothing happened. Because the goal in life isn't self-sufficiency. It's leaning into God, relying on God, and seeking God. And Jesus didn't deny himself the emotions of suffering, and neither should we. But he also never lost his hope, nor his foundation of faith in God, and neither should we. 
You know, later in Mark 27, verse 46, it seems like he had lost faith on the cross when he cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, just a side note, this verse has forever squashed the idea for me that the disciples made all this up so that they could spark a following that would follow Jesus and that would build the church. Because if you're making this up and Jesus is the hero, you would never put words like this in his mouth that are so unheroic, disheartened, and despairing. It's so problematic that it almost reassures me that this really happened. But it speaks to the suffering Jesus experienced, these verses and the verses we read earlier. You know, we're familiar with the term the passion of Christ. There was the movie called The Passion of Christ. There's Passion Week before Easter when he suffered for us. And, and, and that word passion in the Greek literally means suffer, to suffer. Not to breathe heavy and crush on someone like it does in our culture, right? It literally means suffering. Jesus underwent infinite suffering out of infinite love. He went to the cross so that God could one day end sin and suffering without ending us. Because we've all sinned. You know, R.C. Sproul, I love a quote. I've seen it again and again. Maybe you've seen it. But he said this. He said, why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once. And he volunteered. Because we're all sinners, we all need a Savior. Only one person lived perfectly and was perfectly good in his life. But God saw that we were sinners and we needed a Savior. And he wasn't indifferent to our condition. He volunteered. He acted out of love. He entered into our broken condition where hurt people hurt people. He wasn't detached. He wasn't devoid of love. He took our suffering so seriously he was willing to take it on himself. So, again, we we look at that passage from Luke 13, why did this bad thing happen, right? They had to be not so good people for this to happen to them, right? Jesus is saying, no, everybody is not so good. We've all sinned and fallen short. That's why in this passage, he doesn't explain, he doesn't answer why, but he says, hey, you're all going to perish too. We all need to repent. We all need to turn to God. Jesus took our sins, and he was forsaken by God, so we would never have to be forsaken for our sin. Again, if we ask the question, why doesn't God stop suffering, then the incarnation of Jesus shows us profoundly that it's not because he doesn't love us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Come on, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God didn't just come as Emmanuel, God with us, to suffer and die for us, but he came in the incarnation to be Emmanuel, God with us, in any present suffering we have. He can empathize with us. His presence is with us, and he'll walk through it with us. And he has perfect compassion. He can empathize perfectly because he walked through it himself. Sometimes the most powerful words when you're struggling, you're suffering, is just to hear somebody say, me too. I've been there. Jesus forever can say, hey, me too. I suffered. I've been there. And you might say, well, it's great that God loves. It's great that God cares, that he's with us in suffering. But if he's powerful enough to do something about it, then why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he stop suffering? Well, the resurrection shows us that it's not because he's not powerful enough. You know, Rabbi Harold Kushner, he, his son had a, a very rare disease where you, it bizarrely speeds the aging process and they die young. And he witnessed this happen to his son, and he wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It vaulted to bestseller status. This was decades ago. But he explains in the book that he learned to accept God's love but to question his power, that God desires to help, but he can't. And you know the answer to whether God was powerful enough to save this rabbi's son 
is made clear in what God did through his own son. Again, the incarnation shows that not only can he help, but he has. And then after his resurrection, or excuse me, after his death, the resurrection eliminates any doubt that he's powerful enough. It's the ultimate defeat of evil, of suffering, and death. In Romans 6, verses 9 and 10, it says, we are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Again, where other religions, they might offer some consolation. God doesn't just promise consolation and life after death. He offers restoration to restore our body and our world. God created it, and the Bible said he's going to restore it. He's going to restore this earth. He's going to restore creation. And it's with this hope that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. But again, in reflection of all this, if God can in his power eliminate suffering, and if he loves us, why not pull the plug on suffering altogether? We're still left with this question in tragedy and in our own suffering, the question of, of why. You know, with news networks, with social media, with Twitter updates, again, we have Luke 13s that we're told about every day. I follow Voice of Martyrs on Twitter, and they'll just tell these accounts of people that are dying for their faith around the world. I have CNN on my phone, and I'll get notifications of just tragedies where dozens of people die in tragic situations like Luke 13, and it seems, again, almost daily. And I've said it from this pulpit before, Viktor Frankl, he, he survived the Holocaust. He wrote a book about it, and he says this profound statement, that despair is suffering without meaning. So the question why, it's a, it's a natural response. Because we call God to account to somehow give us meaning for the suffering we go through. But one important realization as we come out of this discussion of, of restoration is that this isn't how it was meant to be. When God created and then man chose sin, that fractured, that fractured shalom, that perfect peace, that perfect relationship with God, and brokenness was a result of that. You know, it didn't just break our hearts. It broke creation. In Romans 8, verses 18 through 24, it says, What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. And it says, Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We were given this hope when we were saved. But you know. If you're here for the first time tonight, my wife and I are adopting. We're adopting a, a young boy from India. He's nine months old, so when he comes over, he might be walking. And there might be a day, I have a lot of paintings around my house. We still got to baby-proof the house, but I, I paint a lot. So there's a lot of my paintings around the house. And if, if Raj, who will soon be Titus, if, if he picks up a, a Sharpie or one of my wife's brushes while she's charcoal painting some furniture, not charcoal, chalk paint, thank you. You can tell I do it. And if he goes up to my paintings and just vandalizes them, then I would hope that nobody looks at those paintings and looks at them as a reflection of my skills as an artist. 
or that somehow his will to do that was under my command. And in the same way, God's created us with free will. It's a a blessing that zero of us would want to ask to go without, but a blessing that allows for brokenness. You know, God is love. Strip people of the freedom of choice, and you've stripped them of the opportunity to love. But our choices, they can cause damage in the world. And they don't obviously reflect God's will for his order. And you know, ironically, as believers, our optimism as believers is rooted in this almost pessimistic view of the world. That it's broken. God didn't create it like this, and he's going to restore it. You know, any discussion of the broken world and the painful conditions in this world, it's got to start with the reality that God's not pleased with it either. You know, our optimism is ironically rooted in this pessimistic view of the world. We don't belong here. Our hope is in heaven. But again, even hurting with hope, even hurting with optimism, even hurting with faith, it, it still hurts. You still feel the emotion, still feel the pain. And sometimes the harm is, is in us trying to answer the question why for others as they're in suffering. I think sometimes we want to console them. I think sometimes we want to console ourselves and try to find meaning in it all. So we offer up reasons for suffering. And providing our pet answers and explanations for suffering often causes more harm than good. Oftentimes we mean to console and we end up confusing. For instance, you've got the, the, the cheerleader who irritatingly tries to keep all things positive to help somebody grin and bear it. There's the accuser who explains that the suffering most, must be caused by stepping out of God's will. What did you do? There's the divine masochist who encourages the sufferer to rejoice over the actual pain. And there's the super Christian who believes that healing would come if you just had a little more faith. If you could just conjure up a little more faith, certainly you'd be healed. You know, all those perspectives, they're rooted in Scripture, but they often do more harm than good. That's why the Bible says mourn with those who mourn, hurt with those who hurt. But we always try to grasp for answers to why from our perspective. Because I think the the fear is and the notion is that if it's pointless to me, then it must be pointless. If the suffering doesn't have any meaning for me, then it, it must not have any meaning. But here's the issue with that. If God is transcendent enough to call into question for suffering, shouldn't he also be transcendent enough to have a higher vantage point, a greater perspective, and a different reasoning than we do that's better? We can't have it both ways. You know, if you read the Bible, a lot of these questions why, a lot of these questions looking for meaning, they're asked by Job in the Old Testament in his book written about him. He shouts these questions to God. He's robbed of belongings, loved ones, and even his own health. And again, doubt follows pain like a reflex, even for the man who the Bible says is the most righteous at that time. Even he struggles with doubt when he deals with suffering. And he calls God to the stand. And finally, after dozens of chapters containing Job's passionate cries and and his friends' sometimes painful pet explanations for why he's suffering, God answers. And if you've read Job and you ever get an inkling that God's going to reply on a Saturday night like he did to Job, then give a brother a warning because I'll strap on some Depends or bring a change of clothing because it's terrifying. In Job 38 verses 2 through 3, Three, it says, God says from a whirlwind, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. If you ask me what words I never want to hear from God, brace yourself like a man will probably be at the top of the list. As one commentator 
puts it, God doesn't explain, he explodes. It's one of God's longest statements in the Bible. And it's right after this, dozens of chapters dealing with suffering. So no doubt we should pay attention. And when we ask these questions that Job is asking, the why questions, why is this happening? We should look at God's answers in Job. And here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that it's Job's fault and he earned it. Nor does he say, I wish I could have helped you, but I, but I couldn't. He doesn't speak to a lack of power. He actually highlights it and underlines it and highlights it again in another color. <laughs> all the questions why, all the pet answers that, he, that his friends came up with, God doesn't even address them. It seems kind of out of place, but he basically takes Job to school. Biology 101, and he starts asking him these questions about creation. What do you know about this, Job? What do you, how, how does this work, Job? And in doing so, he highlights his power, his transcendence, and his supernatural wisdom. We, like Job, don't fully understand the universe, can't explain the universe, yet so often we have beef with how God rules it. And God is asking us to trust even in the midst of suffering. He's saying, trust me, let me be the answer. Is that enough for you? You know, Job, the book of Job is a reminder that why is sometimes the wrong question. Sometimes we're asking the wrong question because we may never know. God doesn't owe us that answer. Sometimes we need to readjust our question because in our search for meaning in suffering, it involves two main issues and two questions that arise. The first is why. What's the cause? Who done it, right? What, who, what's at the root of this? Why am I suffering? Who caused this? And the second is to what end? It's a question of response. What now? To what end is all this going to work out? You know, a better, more fruitful question than why is to, to what end when we're suffering. But our inclination is so often, before we respond, we want to know the cause. Before we act, we want to know how did we get here. But God doesn't give Job that path to take. The questions of, of why, those are in God's transcendent domain, but God shifts the focus to what's your response going to be. You know, Jesus does the exact same thing in our passage in Luke 13. The disciples want to look back. They're asking, why? Why did this happen? But Jesus directs their attention forward and poses the question to them, what should we do now? What should we do now? You know, response in life, our response to circumstance, to things that happen, even our own suffering, that, that's the one thing we can control. The reasons why, sometimes those are in God's domain and we'll never know them. But response is our responsibility. You know, the Bible's emphasis so often, again and again, is on our response, not the cause. Because we recognize, you don't even have to believe the Bible to recognize that, that people grow from experience, even painful ones. In Romans, in the book of Romans, in, in Romans 5, verses 3 through 4, it says, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. You know, so often a greater you is preceded by greater suffering. A greater you is so often preceded by great and significant, significant suffering. You know, Nate was up here doing the announcements right here. He's been working out a lot recently. Maybe if you've been here for those months, you realize he is transforming his body. He's been grinding his, his garage. I've been there some with him, but it's just a, a, I applaud him because, you know, we think so much about stewardship of finances. We think about stewardship of our home and these blessings. We're also called to be stewards of our body. And just, he's been working out a ton, and he looks great. Can I say that from the pulpit? He's looking good. <laughs> Thank you. 
I hope y'all didn't see who started that applause. But here's the thing. The strength he's gaining is added and weakness is removed through this process of restoration. When you work out, you're tearing your muscles. That's the cause of the soreness. And then they come back stronger. You know, last week when we were talking about the, the juxtaposition, and sometimes we try to make a contradiction of humility and ambition, when really we're supposed to have humble ambition. And we talked about ambition and how it's so futile, looking at Ecclesiastes, to think that temporary pleasures in this world will eternally satisfy us. But sometimes the other side of that very coin is that sometimes we think that if we could just be free from pain, you know, if we could somehow remove all pain in life, then I'd be happy. We could just get rid of it. But again, we see that we grow from pain. We grow from trials. We build character. We build strength even in our suffering, and we become more like Christ. You know, I read a poll once in a Philip Yancey book, and if you're interested in this subject, he's written many books. He wrote um, one of his first books was called Disappointment with God. He wrote uh, Where is God When It Hurts? And then 10 to 15 years later, he wrote The Question That Never Goes Away, just kind of even continuing that conversation. I don't remember which book it was in, but at one point he references a poll, and it blew my mind so much I had to, like, look at the footnotes, make sure it was legit. But one time in in Britain they polled the elderly. So this was a a couple decades ago because it was an older book. But it asked the question, what was the happiest period of your life? What was the happiest period of your life? And over half of the people that answered said the blitz. Now, if you don't know your history, I'm not talking about football. I'm talking about World War I in 1940. Germany bombed London for 57 consecutive nights. Became known as the Blitz. And that was their answer to that question. And their explanation is that they learned to rally as a people during that time. They learned courage during that time. They learned sharing. They learned hope. Now, would they have asked for that suffering? Not in a million years. Yet it was the season in their life that they pointed to as the happiest It's crazy to me, but it reminds me of another poll that I think I've mentioned from this pulpit. The author John Ortberg, he did it online. So he asked thousands of people, what is is a season in your life where you experienced the most growth that was most significant to who you are today? And the overwhelming answer for um, way more than a majority of those people was a season of suffering. You know, these polls, both of them tell us that suffering can be a catalyst for growth, that it can be redeemed, that God can use it to grow us. And these solely echo the truths that we just read in Romans 5. But, you know, I think sometimes we think that the growth is automatic. And we say things like, well, experience will grow you, but maybe. You know, the the growth comes when we stop asking why, stop focusing on the past, and begin to start asking what now, to what end. Because blame doesn't get us anywhere. The answer to why sometimes but rarely grows us. The blame game often does more to stunt growth than it does to spark it. And those who focus and obsess with the question why, like, how could this happen? Why did God let this happen? Who caused this? Those are the ones that end up losing strength and ultimately faith. But those who grow to trust God despite discomfort and take responsibility for their response, those are the ones that grow. You know, growth comes when we stop looking backwards for answers and start looking forward for how God can grow us, how God can strengthen us, how God can even eventually restore us. You know, for me, though, personally, Whenever I'm in pain, suffering, or, or when I'm praying for Steph who deals with these chronic migraines, my first prayer in those seasons is offered, often, God, comfort me. Take away the pain. 
That's my impulse when I'm suffering or when somebody I know is suffering. It's, it's God, take a, just remove the pain. Comfort us. And that's a good prayer. Jesus himself in the garden, we read about it. He said, hey, God, if you can take this cup of suffering from me, do it. It's because he realized, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1.3, God is our merciful father and the source of all comfort. Goes on to say in that passage that even if sufferings overflow towards us, so does God's comfort all the more. But an arguably more important prayer for seasons of suffering, one that I don't immediately run to, is God conform me. Romans 8 says we're created to be conformed into the likeness, image, and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we might pray for the pain to be removed, but it's not always removed. We see it in Paul. He asked me, God, remove this thorn, right? And it wasn't removed. We might always have the pain removed, but the call to look more like Christ and to perfect holiness is constant. It's daily. It never goes away. Even Jesus grew through suffering. It says in Hebrews 5.8 that he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Why would, why would we be exempt? And if Jesus learned that way, why would I want to be exempt? You know, help me feel better. Comfort me. That's not a, a bad prayer in suffering. But help me look more like Jesus is a great one. I think, again, I'm so, I'm so prone to pray, get me out of this when I, I need to be praying, God, what are you calling me to get out of this? What do you want me to, how do you want me to grow through this? You know, if we could have the, the worship team come up, I know y'all have been thinking about root beer floats ever since Anthony and Nate were holding them up here, so I don't want to keep you from that. But again, you want to look at suffering? Look at Jesus. You want to look at what our response should be? Look at Jesus. You want to know where our hope should be? Look at Jesus. Because Jesus is dealing with suffering through his life, his death, and his resurrection. It gives us hope. It gives us hope that, hey, even in our suffering, God still loves us, and even in our suffering, God's still powerful, and he's almighty. When we ask why doesn't God remove suffering, something we have to remember is eventually he will. He will. It says in Revelation 21, verse 4, that he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things, gone forever. You know, again, we close the worship set at the beginning of service with Good, Good Father. This song where... I don't know what you guys are all walking through. Some of us are walking through a valley. Some of us are walking through struggles. Some of us are walking through pain, seeing people we know suffering, people we love suffering. And yet it's powerful to sing that song in the midst of that season and remind ourselves that, no, God is still good, and he's perfect in all of his ways. To remind ourselves of those things. You know, last week we sang, uh, what's it called? How he loves us. That's like a, a hymn status now we've sung it so much. But how he loves us. You know, the man who wrote that wrote it after his friend died in a car accident. The song Miracles that we've started doing that Jesus Culture sings, I believe in you, I believe in you, you're the God of miracles. He wrote that after his son died. He had just been born and passed away. Those songs were written and created because the songwriters realized the need to trust and praise God even in the midst of suffering. He still reigns in miraculous power. And he's still a good, good father. Their response wasn't why, but it was a fresh crying out to God. And again, that's where Jesus, that's the response Jesus points to in Luke 13. Not a question of of why or how, but we need to cry out to God. In those seasons where we're suffering, in those seasons where we're getting reports like Luke 13 every day, we need to cry out to God. Not just to comfort us, but to conform us. And to conform us and use us 
you know, the reason for suffering. We may not know it, but may we remember that creation is broken and life is short and help that bring us to, to fresh repentance. Again, we're witnessing reports like the one from Luke 13 all the time. The news is just laced seemingly with tragedies and loss of life. But might our response to that be, God, how do you want to use us? We're your church. We're here for a reason. You know, in Psalm 90, I believe it's Psalm 90 where it says, God, teach me to number my days so that I can walk in wisdom. Life is short. We're reminded of that every day. God, teach us to number our days so we can walk in wisdom. Wisdom with our coworker who needs, who needs you. Wisdom with our son or daughter who we're praying for, to, to see them come to Christ. Wisdom for every situation, God, because time is short. Our other response, just to walk in fresh repentance. In Luke 13, again, Jesus said, hey, we're all going to perish. We all need to repent. He says, I will tell you again that unless you repent, you'll perish too. We all need fresh repentance. So as we stand, I believe we're going to sing here is in heaven. We're going to enter into a time of worship. But, but as we stand, we're going to sing this song before we go and break bread together. But if you're here tonight and you realize that your walk with Christ is in need of help, maybe you've never even had one, but you know that you need to repent. You need to turn from some stuff and lay hold of God again whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time. Come on, we sang good, good father, and he's a good father whether we've been good or not. But the steps we take are repentance and faith, turning from whatever that thing is and believing in God. So God, tonight, is, as we sang good, good father, we believe that with all our hearts. God, that no matter what's on our resume or what we've done, Lord God, you're good. Jesus came because you love us. Jesus came because you're powerful enough to do something about it. So, God, if we're walking through suffering physically, we're walking through suffering spiritually, God, I pray that we would spend this song taking it before you, the God who cares, the God who loves, and the God who is almighty and sovereign. God, we worship you because of your son. And again, I'm going to be down here as we're, we're singing, we're praying. If you need prayer, you need to take any of those steps we just talked about. I'm going to be right here. But we're going to go ahead and we're going to sing. Sounds like a good father. But let's worship you.